The word for me in 2014 is the word reinvention. Reinve Anybody with me? Anybody want to do some reinvention? It doesn't mean letting go of everything. It means ramping up. It means living more fully, being more fully who you already are, who you were born to be, who you were meant to be. Reinvention doesn't mean changing for me. It does not mean changing. It means rediscovering, and it feels different sometimes because you try on different things. We try different things. So I'm ready to reinvent myself now. That's the good news. But before I get to the bad news, you know, it's, this is the time of year when we think about these things, right? You know, there's no special magic just because it's the end of the one year and the beginning of another. There's no magic in it. There's no special powers that happen at this time of year. It's just that it's a marker that many people use to just take a snapshot and say, this is where I am right now in my life. Where was I last year? Where do I want to be next year? And when we use it in that way, it becomes a very powerful tool. Now, you don't have to just do it at the end of a year and beginning of a new year. You can do it on your birthdays. You can do it on February 17th every year. You can do it whenever the heck you want. You could do it every single day. But it is useful to have a time that we do set aside. And it's also useful to do it in conjunction with other people, because I know having my in-laws here, we talk about things. We get into those great, deep conversations. What do you want to do? My sister-in-law, although I like to claim her as my sister, my sister-in-law, Lisa, was saying last night, if you could do five other careers in your life, what would they be? What would they be? If you could do anything, what would they be, just for fun? And we had a great discussion. We got into it, and it was exciting and fun. That's what we do at this time. So in that spirit, reinvention becomes something that is alive and, and something right there that we can reach out and touch and allow it to lift us up maybe a little bit more than we were last year. Now, I want to tell you a story. You know, I like to tell stories. And it comes from this book. This is the book I'm obsessed with these days. It's called Fail Fast, Fail Often by a couple of Stanford uh, professors, doctors, Ryan Babineau and John Krumboltz, based on a, a popular Stanford course that they do. And really, this is a book about, it says, uh, to guide you how to act boldly and how to leverage your strengths, even if you're terrified of failure. Really, every chapter is like sitting down for an hour or two with the best life coach you have ever had in your life. And so I read each chapter and I get all pumped up and it's really exciting. I love that kind of thing. And they tell a story in one of the chapters about this woman whose name is Lainey. Are there any Laneys in this room? Okay, good, because I was going to make a disclaimer. It's not that Laney. It's this Laney, the Laney from this book. And Laney is a financial analyst, and she's employed at a corporate office for a major life insurance company. Now, this is not Lainey's dream job, okay? How many of you, well, maybe I won't ask you to raise your hand. I was going to ask you to raise your hand if you are not in your dream job, but if you feel brave enough to do that, how many of you are not in your dream job? All right. And then there's probably some that didn't raise their hands. Lainey's that person. 
Now, this story is about Lainey and her job, but it could be about any of us for any part of our life in which we are not fully satisfied. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe you're in a relationship you're not satisfied in, or maybe you're not satisfied because you're not in a relationship. It could be health issues. It could be uh, creative expression. Maybe you're not painting like Bill, and if you aren't, take his class. But maybe you want more experience creative expression in your life. Whatever it is, that's where Lainey's at, and hers happens to be with her job. And it says she's bored with her work. Five years later, she's bored with her work. She sits in front of her computer, and she often feels grumpy and impatient. When we're bored with our life, when we're not living our full expression, that's how we feel sometimes. We feel bored. We feel stuck. We feel stuck. Lainey has a master's degree in philosophy, and she's a dedicated painter. She feels she would be happier if she could find work with a more creative emphasis, preferably in a diverse and interactive environment. So here's Lainey in a job that is not utilizing her love, which is philosophy. It's utilizing some of her talents and skills, but not her passions. But one day, Lainey saw a posting on the website for a job at a local university. The university was seeking a financial director, so that's where her skills are, for a new learning initiative within the philosophy department. Perfect, right? This is right up her alley. It, ma it matches her skills with her passion. Lainey gets very excited. We sometimes get ideas, or we see an opportunity, or we meet somebody, or we get invited to do something, and at first, we get totally excited by it. And when we get excited about it, we see all the possibilities. We see how we are perfect for that person, perfect for that job. That's what Lainey did. She said, when she read it, her heart began to race with excitement. It was exactly what she'd been looking for. She was amazed to find that the job qualifications almost perfectly matched her background. It was almost as if this job had been cooked up specifically for her. Good. She decided that she would shape up her resume and complete an application over the weekend. Okay. Did anybody catch it? Did anybody catch it? This is the problem. Exactly. She decided she would shape up her resume and complete an application over the weekend. So she goes to work. When you're in a job you don't love, what do you, how do you feel when you come home? Exhausted, right? Tired, drained. The weekend comes, how does she feel? Tired, drained. By the weekend, her enthusiasm had waned. She tried to sit down and work on a resume, but she felt unmotivated. She decided to wait for a day when she felt more energetic. I know you're laughing because you can relate to that, right? We do that all the time. We say, oh, I'm going to do that. <sighs> I'm going to wait until I feel the energy. I'm going to wait until it calls to me. That's how we say it in spiritual terms. I'm waiting for it to call to me. I'm waiting for, you know, my guidance to say I should move forward. The next week at work was hectic. 
Each night, Lainey came home. She thought about applying for the job, but she felt too... She began to wonder if she was really interested in switching careers. The more she thought about it, that's a mistake. <laughs> the more she thought about it, the more it began to look like a kooky idea. It had taken her years to work her way up to her current position. I have heard that excuse, by the way, from myself and other people in this very room when I've worked with people one-on-one -on -one or in classes. I don't know if I should step out. It, you know, I've put a lot of time in here. I've really, I've really, you know, I'm next in line for a promotion. If I leave now, I won't get that bonus. It had taken her years to work her way up, and she suspected that the university job would pay less and require more work. Now, notice, she suspected that. She didn't know that. She suspected it. She's already talking herself out of it. She's talking herself out of it. She kept worrying about the job for the next three weeks. And one day, she went to the posting, and it was gone. Life made the decision for her through her indecision. Through her inability to take action, life took action. It wasn't going to wait any longer. Lainey felt a little guilty for not applying, but, catch this word, she rationalized that since she was never 100% enthusiastic, it had probably not been a good job for her. Now, by the way, on that first day, how much percentage was she enthusiastic? 100%. She forgot, conveniently. When an opportunity arose and it came time to act, Lainey's resistance stopped her in her tracks. She felt unmotivated and unsure, so she did nothing. Now, when I first read that in the chapter, I didn't see Lainey's name on the rest of the page, so I, w I kept flipping forward to see what else, what was going to happen to Lainey. Because, you know, I like a story with a happy ending. I'm not afraid to say that I've cried at a few Lifetime television movies in my day, after a couple martinis, and then... Um, but that's the end of Lainey's story. And when I thought about it, I thought, that's perfect. Because that happens a lot. People say they want something, something comes up, an opportunity, and then nothing happens. And then she did a revisionist history of what happened here. That's the bad news I was alluding to. When we go towards something like reinvention, like wanting to do something new, wanting to meet somebody new, wanting to feel something new, what comes up for us is the word resistance. And we can feel like when resistance comes up that there's something wrong. We shouldn't feel resistance. That must mean my gut is telling me I shouldn't go for it. But that's not what resistance is. Resistance is built into the program. Resistance, I don't know why, because I didn't make the pro program. I did not build the game. I'm just in the game itself, and I know that this is part of the rules. There is resistance that happens. I believe part of it is to see how badly you want what you say you want. And Lainey, clearly, didn't really want it that bad. Or maybe she did, but the resistance was so strong it stopped her. 
That is not the way I believe we are meant to be. That is not the way that I think life is meant to be for us. I don't think that when we have resistance, it is meant to stop us so that we just live this much of life instead of all of it. They say at the beginning of this chapter, it's chapter 8, think of a time in your life when you were feeling happy, enthusiastic, and full of energy. Think about that now. Think of a time in your life, a period of time when you were happy, and when you're happy, you're doing something that you love, and you got all that energy, and you just feel so much joy. Everything's clicking. You know what I mean? Now, consider what you were doing when you felt that. Our guess is that you weren't sitting home every night eating Haagen-Dazs and watching reruns of Friends. If you are like most people, that time in your life that have been the most, the times in your life that have been the most vibrant and meaningful were when you were engaged in exciting projects, taking on new challenges, learning fascinating things, immersing yourself in creative expression, or nurturing a significant relationship. In other words, we are happiest in our life when we are engaged in our life. We are unhappiest in our life when we are numb or disengaged from our life. Although most of us recognize that success and happiness come from taking action to embrace the opportunities in our lives, we often have trouble getting ourselves in motion. That's the trouble. We allow our doubt, indecision, and fear to bring us to a halt and keep us stuck in place. To help you understand why this happens, let us introduce you to the arch enemy of action, resistance. Resistance. So, resistance feels like when a career comes up, like Laney, and we don't go for it. Or it feels like when we have creative, like I want to write a novel. I hear that all the time from people. I want to write a book. I want to write a screenplay. And then we don't do it. And six years later, we're still saying, I want to write a screenplay. I want to write a book. And we still aren't doing it. Resistance comes in the form of, I really want to find the love of my life. Computer dating? I would never do that. <laughs> have my friends set me up? That never works. It uh, comes with physical activity. I know nothing about that, by the way, that particular resistance. <laughs> Improving our home or organizing. We have resistance to a lot of things that will actually make our life better. So I'm going to tell you a few things about resistance. Because if we understand what resistance is, then we can make choices to go beyond it. The first thing you need to know about resistance, and it was very well illustrated in this story with Laney, is that when we are in resistance, we rationalize. We begin to rationalize things very quickly. When we feel resistance, the rationalization comes from that ego part of us, that lizard brain, that part of us that is the unconscious, subconscious, that wants to keep things in a status quo. We've talked about this before in talks past where there is, a, there is like a um, amount of happiness and pain that we allow ourselves to have. When we feel just this much pain, we're okay because it's familiar, but if we feel just a little bit more, 
we begin to do something, we get kicked into action, and we begin to do something so we don't feel the pain anymore. But we usually stop doing that good thing just when we get back into the acceptable range. It's the same with our joy. There's an acceptable range of joy that we allow ourselves to feel, and if we go one little bit of iota above it, our resistance kicks in and says, that's not the approved amount of joy in your life. You've got to go right back down and feel lousy. You've, we're going to create some drama for you so that you're not going to feel good anymore. We're going to trip you up on the steps so that you can complain about a knee or an ankle. We're going to, oh, oh, I know what we'll do. We'll send you a bill in the mail that you weren't expecting. That'll ruin it. Oh, a big fight with your spouse. Yes, yes. We got you right back into acceptable range. You're welcome. That's what our ego does. So resistance is that part of us that does not want us to exceed our happiness level. And it says here, this is so great because it's almost like something, it's almost like a, a, a Grinch inside of us. And this resistance will tell you anything to keep you from doing your work or to following your dream. It will perjure, fabricate, falsify, seduce, bully, and cajole. It will assume any form if that's what it takes to get you back to acceptable levels. It will reason with you like a lawyer or jam a nine millimeter in your face like a stick-up man. Resistance has no conscience. It will pledge anything to get a deal, then double-cross you as soon as your back is turned. Resistance is always lying and is always full of stuff. When you resist, you let things pile up so that they become a weight on your shoulders. I certainly know that feeling. When you resist, you deny your dreams by pushing them into the future. When you resist, you get lost in trivial tasks. When you resist, you take your life for granted. When you resist, you feel limited. When you resist, you feel disheartened because your life is on hold. When you resist, you feel hopelessly stuck because nothing ever changes. I thought you all would chime in on that one. <laughs> when you resist, you wait for a big payoff in the future, or you postpone things until you are in a better mood, or you postpone things until you have a little bit more money, or you postpone things until you have a little bit more time or till when the time is right. That's what we do with resistance. And we tell ourselves that we're doing it for ourselves. That's the rationalization. But I'm here to tell you, anytime you tell yourself that limiting yourself or saying no to opportunities is for you, that's not true. That's that resistance part of you that wants to keep you in your comfort, comfort zone. But if you ask anybody who has ever succeeded at anything, whether it's love, the body, corporate success, artistic success, or whatever, and you say to them, have you always done everything by staying in your comfort zone? They will answer you, no. In fact, the comfort zone keeps you back. It keeps you back. That is not to say that you're going to feel uncomfortable when you go towards things. It's to say that you fear that you will be uncomfortable when you move towards things. The more resistant you feel, the bigger change 
you fear. But their antidote, don't you want there to be an antidote at this point? The energy just went There is an antidote, and the antidote is take action. They say that the thing that will take you out of the resistance faster than anything is taking an action immediately. Not like Lainey, who wanted to wait for the weekend. Her rational mind said, it makes more sense to wait till the weekend, because I'll have more time to focus on it, and I'll be able to really get into it more, and I'll be uninterrupted. But that's not how energy works. Energy does not wait for the future. It's in the now. Taking action is the antidote. And the second thing about resistance, which ties into this, is they say in this book that resistance, whenever you start a program or you you, you, uh, sign up for something like uh, Weight Watchers or Match.com or you begin a healing modality or you begin to take classes, whatever it is, the human response for this can be charted how your energy is going to be in this process. And you can even chart it for an entire year, how your energy is charted. And the chart for almost every human being looks like this. We start out with a lot of energy at the beginning. And at the end, we have a lot of energy. In the middle, it's like a big U with a wide line at the bottom. And he said, what happens in this book, they say, what happens is when we are in that middle part, that is when we are most at risk to fall into the temptation of resistance. So simple, easy illustration. You say, I'm going to join a gym, and I'm going to work with a trainer for 12 weeks. You feel really great day one. Day two, you might be here. By day four, by week five, by week eight, you're already in resistance, and you begin to feel like, I don't want to get out of bed. Our rationalization begins to think of all the reasons why not getting out of bed is better than going to the gym. Oh, I've got a tight schedule this week. If I go to the gym, I'm going to be, you know, I'm, I'm going to be hurried. Oh, my back is hurting me. Maybe I better not go to the gym and injure it further, et cetera, et cetera. That middle part is built into the system. So whenever you start anything, know ahead of time that there might come a time when you feel resistance in the form of low energy, not wanting to do it, maybe this wasn't the right thing, there are other things I could be doing with my time, et cetera, et cetera. Know that ahead of time so you can make what they call pre-decisions. Pre-decisions, meaning, oh, that's what that is. That's resistance. Got it. Now you'll take action. Now I'll take action. They call these things, by the way, when we get into this middle part, this is another form of resistance, they call them mystery moods. Mystery moods. And what they say about the mystery moods, they quote a couple of um, studies that were done where they took a group of people and divided them into two groups. Okay, One group was the test group. The other group was the control group. And what they did is they showed each group 
a series of subliminal messages. You know what those are? Those are like when they're showing a, um, a film and they replace one of, the, one of the little panels in the film with a word. Our brain will register the word, but our conscious mind won't see it. That's subliminal, subliminal. So they divided the two groups into uh, the test and the control groups, and they showed them subliminal messages. With the control group, they showed subliminal messages that would bring up very low emotional response. Words like car, cup. Anybody getting any strong emotional reactions to those words? No. Unless you want a new car, I guess. That would be something. But that's what they showed this. In this group, they showed some subliminal messages that were associated, words that were associated with stereotypical characteristics of the elderly. Words like Florida, forgetful, wrinkled, okay? Now, keep in mind, the people who are seeing these subliminal messages, they don't know the words that they're seeing. They don't know any of that. Then they charted these two groups afterwards, and they discovered that the group that got the subliminal messages that were um, stereotypical characteristics of the elderly walked slow after seeing these subliminal messages. Then they did the same kind of study where, again, there was low emotional response words shown to the control group, but the test group got words that were related to rudeness. And then when they did the uh, after check, they found out that this group that had seen subliminal messages related to rudeness kept interrupting each other. And then they did it again, and they said that um, they were going to, how did they say it? They said that they were going to flash words related to personal characteristics in order to give them the unconscious goal of forming impressions of people. They didn't tell them what they were asking them to do. They just had these uncom um, uh, unconscious goals of forming impressions of people. So the control group was shown with neutral words, but the test group was shown with words that were inconsistent, that were kind of back and forth, that were mixed messages like clumsy, agile. Those are opposites, right? So they couldn't quite get in the rhythm of anything and they couldn't form any specific opinions. Then when they charted those people afterwards, what they found is those people had, were in, uh, reported that they were all in negative moods, but they didn't know why. They didn't know why. Why is this important? It's important because they say, we like the phrase mystery moods because it helps debunk the unwarranted authority. That's an important phrase. Get this unwarranted authority that so many people bestow upon their negative feelings. If someone asks you why you decided not to pursue a job possibility, it sounds and feels a lot better to say, I had a bad feeling about it and I decided to trust my intuition, rather than saying, I decided not to do anything because my mystery mood wasn't chipper enough. We want to ascribe a meaning to the mystery mood. But here's the thing. These people in the study got into that mood based on subliminal negative 
responses they didn't even know they were seeing. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I would put forth before you the fact that there are countless negative subliminal messages being shown to us at all times. All you have to do is look at web news these days, and the headlines all this morning were the biggest tragedies of 2013, the biggest scandals of 2013, uh, 25 celebrities we loved to hate in 2013. Everything was so negative. And that's, sub, that's not the subliminal, that's the liminal messages. Imagine all the subliminal messages that are just going in, and then we have a negative thing, feeling, and we think, I wonder why I'm not feeling good right now. Their response, their antidote to this, take action. They call it, move your mood. So we don't necessarily always connect the dots that, using that example of the gym, that I don't want to go to the gym today may be a result of all the negative subliminal messages that we've received in the day and we don't connect the dots. We go into rational mode, rationalization mode and they say the only way to get out of that mood is to do the thing you don't want to do. So they say, the next time you are about to talk yourself out of doing something because you aren't feeling up to the task, do it anyway and change how you feel. Say to yourself, I'm going to do blank so that I can get in the mood for it. Get it. Do it before you're in the mood for it. If we waited till we were in the mood to do lots of things, we would get nothing done. If I waited to do my work at my, the, my daytime job until I was in the mood for it, I would get fired. Not only is taking action the fastest way to establish a more positive attitude toward doing something, it is often the only way you can come to feel positive and comfortable about unfamiliar activities. One last story from this book, and I love this story. It's from the same chapter, in fact. It's about a professor who wanted to write a book. And he wanted to write a book for a lot of reasons. One publisher parish in academia. He knew that if he wrote a book, it would help him uh, establish tenure. He also knew that if he wrote a book, it would get his name out there and he'd get some recognition and some fame and maybe make some money. And it would feel personally just like a, an accomplishment to write a book. But he kept procrastinating. He kept being in resistance about writing this book. So he decided he needed to get some help. So he goes to a Freudian analyst. <laughs> he went to a Freudian analyst. I think Freudian analysts are great, and I think all kinds of analysts are great. But he goes to a Freudian analyst, and he meets with this analyst for a year. And at the end of the year, the Freudian analyst revealed that the professor resisted academic success due to a deep-seated fear of distancing himself from his blue-collar father. Okay, that's good information, but he didn't work on the book. So then he decides that he's gonna go to a cognitive psychologist, okay? Great, we love our cognitive psychologists. If there are any in this room, we love you. You're our friend, 
If you come more than once, you're our family. And he does a year's round with the cognitive psychologist, who at the end of the year revealed to the professor that he needed to overcome self-limiting thinking styles. Yeah. Uh, But he still didn't have the book. Five years goes by, no book. Finally, he goes to see another counselor. Now, (laughs) this poor guy, this poor professor, you know, He's thinking all these reasons why I'm not writing the book. My, I've got father issues. I've got cognitive thinking problems. I've got all this stuff. He goes to this new counselor, and it says, during the first session, the professor described the many obstacles he faced in completing his book. We love our stories, don't we? We can tell our own stories. We can, you remember that book, uh, Illusions by Richard Bach? He says in there, argue your limitations, and sure enough, they're yours. Boy, we got a lot of good arguments for our limitations. He says, um, here's all the obstacles, his emotional issues, negative cognitive patterns, the heroic intellectual challenge of the project, the stupendous pressure that the book be a success. (sighs) After really going into the story for 30 minutes, the professor settled back in his chair, feeling a little proud of his lucid summation of his predicament. Now, I like the counselor he went to, finally, because this is what I would do, and I know this is what Reverend Michelle would do, the same thing. The counselor sat for a long time, deep in thought, and finally he spoke, and this is what he said to the professor. There's nothing I can do for you. You just need to go and write. (laughs) That's it. Just get into action. Just get into action. It says, so what happened? Oh, what happened next? He went home, and he decided to sit in front of the keyboard for 20 minutes. When you decide to take action, you don't have to take action for six hours. 20 minutes. He started 20 minutes. And he began writing. Once you are moving, it's easier the next day to do the same thing. So the next day, he sat down and he continued to write. He ended up getting his book done in six months, and it was published to great acclaim. The professor was granted tenure and became a leader in the field. He's the opposite of Laney. So what happened? What changed that allowed the professor to finally get going and write his book? He didn't resolve his emotional problems, improve his thinking, or come up with better ways to manage his anxiety. What changed is that instead of fretting about writing, he just started doing it. Despite his worries and concerns, he sat down at his desk and started typing. He sat down at his desk and started typing. Now, you may not have a book that you want to write, or you may. You may have something else that is in front of you to do. Maybe you've been putting it off for five years, or 25 years. Or maybe it's something that just came to you, an idea, an opportunity, something that just came to you that you thought, man, You know how you know when something's good? It's when you smile and when you can start breathing. Oh, yeah, I'd love to do that. How's work? (gasps) What if you did that? Oh, yeah, that's the difference. That's how we know. Whatever it is, feel the resistance that you have. 
and be okay with it. Know that resistance is part of the process, but don't let it be the end of the process. Don't let it be the end of the story. Don't let Laney's story be your story. Be the professor. Well, you don't have to go through Jungian analyst, I mean the uh, Freudian analysts and all that kind of stuff. The end part where he sat down and he just started writing. Let that be your story. Why is this important? It's important because of this. This is from the other book, the book that we're using in the workshop this afternoon. I love this. He's talking about our life and how we resist or procrastinate our life, our dreams, our goals, the things that will help us. And he says this. He says procrastination or resistance or delay of any kind is a problem with not getting on with life itself. When we procrastinate on our dreams... We are our own worst enemy. These are our goals, our dreams, our tasks, our whatever it is we want to do, and we are needlessly putting them off. Our goals are the things that make up a good portion of our lives. Our dreams are the things that make up a good portion of our lives. In fact, both philosophers and psychologists have proposed that happiness is found in pursuit of our goals. It's not necessary that we are accomplishing anything in particular, but that we are engaged in the pursuit of anything that we think is meaningful. When we are procrastinating on our goals and dreams, we are basically putting off our own lives. So, I for one, the end of 2013, with reinvention as my guide and putting a line in the sand. This is what I don't want. This line represents the ceiling of happiness that we have, that comfort zone of happiness. And I think it's time that we go above that line. We go past that line and we step over it knowing that if any resistance comes up, if any fear comes up, if any challenges come up that feels big, I'm going to put on that movie, The Wizard of Oz, and I'm going to fast forward it to the end when everybody's scared to death of the big and powerful Oz, and the dog goes, remember? And behind the curtain was that frightened little man. That's what's behind it. I'm going to remember that. And I'm going to remember it for all of you. I've stepped over this line for myself. I've stepped over this line for each one of you, whatever it is. When you come to the workshop this afternoon, if you don't even know what it is, you'll know what it is probably by the end of that hour. I've stepped over the line for each one of us because 2014 is the year of our dreams. 2014 is the year that we can take our finger off the pause button of whatever part of our lives is on hold and maybe has been on hold for decades. Am I doing this alone, or are you going to do this with me? Okay, yeah, I'll do it. No, this is the time. And so it is.